So if you have a Bible, we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy, and I'm going to try and weave together over a couple chapters um, a section of Scripture that I've called The Breath of God. And you're probably familiar with the, maybe the main theme of this, uh, this passage, but I want to begin reading for you in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and uh, let's begin at verse 14. Paul speaking to this young pastor Timothy, he said, you, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of in whom you have, um, from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are also able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then the passage I'm taking the title from, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and, from, and turn aside their hearts to myths. That is an apt description of what is happening in our world and what has already happened in so many corners, right? We, have, we live in a world in which God's word is not only not acknowledged, but certainly not honored. And yet, to some extent, that's the way it's always been, so we should not lose heart just because of that. But we do live in a day and age in which there are many people that would um, take what we would call God's word, and they say, I don't even believe in the God that you say wrote this book. There's a whole group in the last 10 years that some people call the new atheists, um, people that have risen and are angry and outspoken against God, and that has permeated the culture in the last number of years. One of them, a man by the name of Sam Harris, has said some propositions are so dangerous that it may be even ethical to kill people for believing them. And of course, that's talking about people who believe the Christian truth. That's an incredibly angry statement coming from someone like that. Another one of these men, Richard Dawkins, says in the universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. So what's he saying? He said, we live completely by chance, and uh, you don't know how to control your world, and you might get run over, and just depends on what DNA works and how that whole thing works out, and so we're strictly creatures of chance. We live also in what some people call a postmodern era, and it's made up of all these new terms that have come from the academic community in the last probably 40 or 50 years since the 60s and 70s, but now they're coming into, into overt practice. Theories like critical race theory and social justice and intersectionality have been introduced into our conversation. Just two years ago, the California legislature mandated what is called an ethnic studies model curriculum for high schoolers. And if you read this, it, it, it's, beyond, it's beyond almost a, the ability to believe. In fact, is that the end of this, they put a glossary of terms at the end of their document because they introduced so many terms that most people don't even know, what does that mean? And yet that's what is now being propagated in, in so many of our high schools. Here's what they said. The field critically grapples with the various power structures and forms of oppression, including but not limited to white supremacy, race and racism, sexism, classism, homophobia, Islamophobia, transphobia, and xenophobia that continue to impact the social, emotional, cultural, economic, and political experiences of native peoples and peoples of color. And it's so profound that in their document they have a whole new, in this 22-page glossary, <clears throat> they've introduced terms like positionalities, hybridities, nepantalas, and misogynoir. They write history as H-X-R-S-T-O-R-Y because we don't want to pander to what is termed accurate history by some. 
They say history has been introduced by kings and queens, men and women, and we can't rely simply upon people who view themselves as men and women to give us an accurate view of history. They say this is because our bias is to a system of power that is based on the dominance of cis heterosexual men. In other words, what we receive from history is received from men and women who think of themselves as men and women. And so our whole world is in a world of confusion. And we hear these terms, we see these things going on, we grapple with what is truth, what is not truth, what can we hold on to, what can we adhere to, what should we react to. And it leaves us as Christians wondering what can we believe and what can we hold on to. So I want to I want to give us a proposition today and say that, that God's word never changes and he never changes. And that's why we have to hold on to this book that he has given to us. And when a world is confusing as it is today, we must understand that. I want to have two caveats. I want to help us to understand that God is completely sovereign and all these things you could go through and you could probably list a whole list of stuff yourself. And uh, we'd look at that and we can kind of wring our hands, oh my, what a, what a terrible world, the sky is falling. But I'm not a pessimist, I'm an optimist because God is in control. And you can look all the way through the history of the Bible as well as the 2,000 years since the completion of the New Testament. And you can see God's sovereign hand working through men and women down through the years. And so we should not assume that God has somehow grown silent or that he's absent or that he doesn't know what's going on and he can't discern truth and error from all these things. And so it leaves me with a strong belief that God is sovereign and I can trust him. And the second caveat I'd have when we need to see that in this world, the most solid answer we have, the most transformative message we can give is from scripture. That's why what you're doing today makes more sense in God's economy than anything else going on around you today. I thought I was driving into this area, some area where I have not been before, but I wondered how many churches are scattered around, one here, I know, one here, one there, one over there. And it may not seem like much in this world that we live in with millions of people in the greater San Francisco area, but my friends, believe me, that God is more in tune with what is going on here right now than he is in the greater culture. This is his heart. Ephesians 3 he says this is what is done that's displayed before the angels and they are looking on at what is going on in churches like this today. So we should have heart as we acknowledge that. Now, I want to read this passage. Uh, we've read this passage. I want to just walk through this a little bit. I want to point out a couple of things about what we can say we can trust in when we come to Scripture. The first thing I want to assert is the Bible asserts here for us is that Scripture saves. Now, I know if people say, well, Jesus says, I get that and I understand that, but the scripture, the written word is what brings us this message about this person, Jesus. So I'm going to say scripture saves. Don't think that I'm saying there's something magical about these words, but we'll see as scriptures explain to us here how this works out. The book of 1 Timothy and the book of Titus, so it's called the pastoral epistles. And so here's Paul addressing a young pastor. And these, these epistles were very fundamental in my early ministries. I looked at this seminar and that seminar, and everybody's telling us how to do church. I probably went five or six years before it dawned on me that God's already given us a seminar. He's given us an understanding how we're to do church, and here it is. And so I've always come back to these passages as a young pastor, and now as a retired pastor, to say that's what's been the lifeblood of the church is relying upon that which God has given to us. So he tells us in verse 15, he said, Timothy, you as this young pastor, however, continuing the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Well, where did Timothy get what he knew? He says, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy, you've learned something about the word of God that's the wisdom that brings Jesus Christ and salvation to you. Where did that come from? Well, we know later on scripture in the second Timothy, it says that it came from his mother and his grandmother. And fact is they lived pretty much as we would acknowledge, pretty much a single mother's life. We know that Timothy obviously had a father, but his father's never mentioned. So hats off to single moms and to recognize that that influence, that impetus, that instruction that someone would give to their children can be 
modeled after these two women that implanted this in Timothy. And Paul knew that, and Paul acknowledged that. So we asked them, well, now what truths did these women teach Timothy? And I, I could go through a lot, but I'm just going to break that down to three simple truths that I think they probably taught him because it's contained in that passage when Paul says, what you were taught leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. So you know, at that time, as they taught Timothy, they didn't have the writings we call the New Testament, right? They had the Old Testament. So I'm going to go back to and say, what would, what would these women have taught Timothy? One of the things that they would have taught him, they would have probably begun in Genesis 3, where we would have found Adam and Eve, and we would have understood that they would have taught him that Eve was deceived, and Satan came to Eve and said, Indeed, has God said, men and women, that's the start of all sin. That's the start of all distress. That's the start of all getting off the path. Has God really said? It's a question that we ask ourselves, I think, if we're honest, all the time. Is this really right? Is this really what God has said? And we know then the passage goes on. It says, then the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And God replied, I think, in this wonderful question, who told you that you were naked? You see, immediately when he sinned, his conscience began to be developed. He had a mindset to follow God, but when he stepped outside God's pattern, all of a sudden, he knew that something was wrong. I'm now naked. I'm exposed. I've stepped out from under God's protection. And now God saw it too and pointed that out. God knew that he was naked, but he pointed that out to him. That was the beginning of a conscience. My friend, don't miss this because this is not only historical truth. It, this is, this is a, can I call it, emotional or psychological truth helped us understand that the issue of the conscience is something that God has placed in every single one of us and it can be developed, it can be educated, if you will. And you go along with the world and you will see your conscience change and your conscience educated where that which previously was thought of as sin, now if you do it a number of times, well, it's no big deal. And we find ourselves asking, just like Eve did, as God really said. But we know the Bible asserts that from our youth, from our very beginning, that we're estranged from God from the womb. In Psalm 53, verse 2, it says, God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's anyone who understands who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Can I repeat that? It's actually the same passage you find in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There is no one who does good, not one. Now, sometimes people come and they want to ask, you know, well, John, what about all these people in some far-off land that are good people, they just don't know Jesus? What's the answer to that? The Bible says hey, there's no one good. We all have turned aside on our way, Isaiah says. That's a, that, that's a monstrous truth. That's, a, that's, a, that's one that's hard to get a hold of because we want to think of people as being basically good. <clears throat> but that's not what the Bible asserts here. I think that's part of what Timothy's mother and grandmother taught him from Scripture. I remember years ago when I was in college, I went to a sociology class. It was one of these classes where there's about 150 people in this large room. And the prof got up as a Monday, Wednesday, and Friday class, and on Monday he got up and he began the discussion this way. What is the nature of man? And so after a while, every you know, student began to raise their hands. Well, man is basically this or that. He's basically good, but it's his, it's his environment that's changed him. It's his parents. It's his lack of money. It's his lack of social standing or whatever. This went on all Monday for an hour. Came back Wednesday, went on all Wednesday, and he was continuing it on Friday. Now, I was a 19-year-old sophomore in college, and it just begun my walk with God, and I, I, I wanted to raise my hand, but I was afraid, and finally I raised my hand, and he said, yes, sir, in the back. And I said, well, the basic nature of man is that he's estranged from God, and he's a sinner. Now, you can almost imagine, that was a long time ago, but there, there, was, such, <laughs> there was such an outcry from the kids, and everybody turned around and looked at me, who's the idiot on the back row? What's this thing called sin? And the president, no, no, let him talk. And so he said, explain yourself. I said, well, 
I said, I was born in a family where my mother and father loved me. We didn't have a lot. I'm one of 11 kids, so we didn't have a lot. But I remember they loved me. I had food on the table. It, things were provided for me. I never was in want of anything, yet I ended up on the wrong side of the law twice before I was 14 years old. I ended up being bailed out of jail at 3.30 in the morning when I was 14 years old. Now, I don't know what you call that, but that's not an environment. That was here. And he said, I don't know what this means, but he said, touche. Uh, okay, touche. And then he said this. He said, yes, we all make mistakes. And I almost wanted to say, no, 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 no. I didn't say I made a mistake. A mistake is what? A mistake is when you fail to carry the two when you're doing your income taxes, right? Or a mistake is you miss a freeway off-ramp. That's a mistake. But the heart of man is not filled with mistakes. The heart of man, the Bible says, is desperately sick, turned away from God. That's the heart of man. Remember a number of years ago after World War II, I stumbled across a story, and then I, I um, ended up looking it up, and you actually see this incident on YouTube. But do you remember that uh, they brought a number of the war criminals from Hitler's Germany to trial after World War II, killing six million Jews, they brought these men to trial. Adolf Eichmann was one of the ones that was brought to trial. And they showed this particular clip where he was sitting in a plastic encased witness stand, and they brought a young man in named Yehiel Diener, who had been a recipient of some of the atrocities from Adolf Eichmann previous to this, and he was gonna be a witness. And they began to introduce him, they had some simple questions. About nine minutes into the video, you can see Diener sitting there in his chair, and he, he, his head comes down, and then he begins to sob uncontrollably. And then he, you can see he just breaks down, <clears throat> almost, <clears throat> almost falls to the floor. <coughs> the judge asked him if he wants to go on, and he said he can't. So he was dismissed. It was covered by 60 Minutes, and afterwards, Mike Wallace, the one who was interviewing at that time, interviewed him. He said, what were you thinking? He said, I looked in the face of Adolf Eichmann, and he said, I saw me. And he said, I saw that every man has the propensity to be like him, like him. Mike Wallace said, how is it possible for a man to act as Eichmann acted? Was he a monster, a madman, or was he perhaps something even more terrifying? Was he normal? My friend, I suggest that the Bible would say every single one of us has the capability to be an Eichmann in the right circumstances with the right influence. When we stop saying no to our conscience that God has given to us, we all have that ability. And why did the world want to bring people like Eichmann to trial? Well, many people said, well, he's sick. That's the word that people used today. Oh, that, he is sick. He's a sick puppy. Listen, if he was sick, why, why didn't they send him to a therapist? Why didn't they send him to an MD? Why did they demand a trial that said, that wants to come, to, this is wrong? It's because what the Bible says is true. So I think Timothy's mother and grandmother taught him. I think also they understood that God's response to this is to give the good news of the gospel. Ed talked about that before. The gospel is all over the Old Testament, you realize. Now I understand Jesus Christ and the cross is not there, but you have pictures of the gospel all over. I don't doubt that his mother and grandmother may have taken him back to Genesis 22. Remember, God told Abraham to sacrifice his son. This is the only son that he had. This has been promised him for years. Remember, Abraham was old. In fact, it said his, his wife was old, unable to bear children, and yet here's this miraculous baby that comes along to fulfill God's promise to them. And yet God told him, I want you to sacrifice your son. Now some people are going to say, wow, that's a cruel, harsh God. And yet we see something very important happen there. It says that Abraham took his 13-year-old son up to Mount Moriah. And it says, in the first occurrence of this word in the Bible, it says to the people around, said, we're going to go up there, we're going up to the mountain to worship. 
Now contemplate that. I'm going to take a knife and I'm going to go up to the mountain and even it says Isaac as he's going up says, Dad, I see, the, I see the wood, I see the knife, but I don't see a lamb. What are we going to sacrifice? And Abraham says this, God will provide a lamb. That's why he worshiped, because he had an understanding of who God was is beyond all these circumstances, knowing that somehow God is going to work this out. We know that he went up to the mountain and says that Isaac was laid out in the altar. And I have to believe that Isaac was complicit in that. Abraham was over 100 years old. You know, it says he laid him on the altar. You know, I, I can't picture a 100-year-old man taking his son, lifting him up. I think he may have said, Isaac, you need to climb up. And then it says he took the knife to bring it down to kill his only son. And then the angel of the Lord came. I believe in the person of Christ himself. said, Abraham, I see now that you're a man who will worship me. And he says, turn around. And there was a ram in the thick. And he took the ram. And that became the substitute sacrifice. You see the picture of the gospel? Because in the New Testament, Jesus is called what? The Lamb of God. That's one of the first pictures we have of the gospel in the Old Testament. Timothy, I think, learned that. But I think Timothy also learned possibly from his mother and grandmother that these animal sacrifices weren't enough. Timothy knew about the Passover that the Jews celebrated. Remember, the Passover came from when the children of Israel were taken out of captivity in Egypt and they had to leave in such a hurry. And God said, in the, in the last plague, you guys know what the plagues are? I think you heard them last year, right? I heard that Rod went through the book of Exodus. What a timely passage to come through during the pandemic as you work through all the uh, issues of Exodus. But you remember the last one. God said, you know, you need to take the, the blood of a lamb and you need to put it on both sides of the door and on the top of the door. And anyone takes that blood and puts it on the top of the door and the sides, the angel of death will pass over you and your oldest child will be saved. Well, that became instituted in the culture of Israel, this issue of Passover. And it, it occurred that it had started almost 1,400 years before the time of Christ. Now, I thought of this one time, came up with something interesting. 1,400 years of Passover meals. Now, I know that it wasn't, the Jews didn't celebrate Passover every year, all the time. They were disobedient. But if you take these Passover meals, Josephus says that at one time during the time of Christ, there were 250,000 sacrificial lambs that would have been offer, all offered on the altar in Jerusalem during the time of Christ. 250,000. Now, if you even reduce that just for number's sake down to 100,000 lambs that might have been offered at Passover, over 1,400 years, that would mean 140 million sacrificial lambs but here's the kicker. They could not take away sin. We know the writer of Hebrews told us this. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, <clears throat> pointing to Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Now, they didn't have advantage of the book of Hebrews, but from the Old Testament, I believe that his mother and grandmother taught him that, that the Passover lamb is a symbol of taking away sin. And yet we also believe that in the book of Exodus, there's a tremendous little verse that says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Does that sound familiar? That's also New Testament. Same thing. How were people in the Old Testament saved? Not by the law. Not by making sacrifices. They believed in God and God credited it to their account. You understand what that is? Again, going back to what Ed said this morning, the gospel. The gospel is coming to God with our sin, which any intelligent person would have to admit. <clears throat> it never took a, a great intellect for me to believe that I was a sinner. If we come and we take our sin, <clears throat> And the Bible says that God exchanges our sin for his righteousness. He credits his righteousness to my account. That's like taking 
who's the richest man in the world right now, Jeff Bezos. That's like taking Bezos' account and putting it into my bank. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says that he, that is speaking of Christ, knew no sin, but became sin for us. Why? So that we might have the righteousness of God in him. <clears throat> See, the gospel isn't just about taking away sin. The gospel is covering us with his righteousness. And I know you go home and look in the mirror and say, oh, I don't look very righteous, and I get it. I don't either. But God's standard of righteousness is applied to me, to every person who's come and understands this. I think Timothy understood that. One last thing I think that they probably taught him, I think they probably understood the concepts of repentance and grace and forgiveness. You find that, again, all the way through the Old Testament. One of the primary passages we know, here's David in Psalm 32. David, remember, was a man after God's own heart, yet David was a flawed man. David is there, I think, to help us understand that, and not that we repeat his sin, but to help us understand that's, that's even the best of us at times. He was a man that followed God, and yet he fell into adultery, even murder then to cover up his adultery. Psalm 32 is a, is a passage that is deep in emotion. Here's David's words when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet about his sin. He said, when I kept silent about my sin, when I don't acknowledge it, when I fail to look deeply into my heart and see the sin that's there, instead of just looking at everybody else and don't see the sin there, he said, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Covering sin, pretending that it's not there, will have physical ramifications even. He goes on and said, for a day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I knew that I'd done wrong. I knew that committing adultery with this woman was sin. I knew it was wrong and that I knew I'd killed her husband to cover it up. It just ate at me and ate at me. You see, sin becomes private. Sin becomes closeted. Sin becomes my secret. Nobody else knows. But all that does is eat away inside. David says, until... He says, until, <clears throat> in verse 5, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Men and women, that one of the most, one of the most wonderful things in the world is grace. It's, it's just, it's an, an, a, the most incredible thing for anybody that understands that before God, I'm undone. I'm sinful. He knows it. <clears throat> Confession is just telling him that I know it too. Several years ago, I, my wife and I went to a mini family reunion in Texas, and she had to come home to, early to get ready for a shower for our daughter-in-law. So I drove back from Texas on my own. And I went north from Texas back to the town I'd been raised in in Hutchinson, Kansas. As I came in from the south side of town, I came to B Street, and I turned right about half a block and then turned left and parked in front of a big brick building. I sat there in my car by myself staring at this building because that building was on my paper route when I was a kid in that town. For two years, I delivered papers to this building. This building at that time housed the police department and the fire department. And I entered through this single, then it was green, now it was red, red door, Walked in, made jokes with the sergeant about I'm walking out and all this kind of stuff. We had all these kind of banter on for two years. And then one day, one night, I came into that building in a police car. Because I'd been caught stealing cars. My father had to be called at 3.30 in the morning. Mr. McNeff, we have your son down here in the jail. Oh, no, he's upstairs in bed. Oh, no, he's not. He's down here in our jail. And right beside that door, there was this window that, how, that, that was the holding cell that I was in. I was 14 years old. Now I'm sitting back looking at that over 50 years later. And I'm sitting there marveling at God's grace. And I'm thinking of that kid that was behind that window and where that kid was headed, broke the heart of my father, broke the heart of my mother, 
broke the hearts of people that knew us, broke my brother's hearts to be embarrassed now to have this brother who had been in jail, and yet to see God's mercy that reached in and saved me. My friend, that, that's the most incredible message that can ever be given to this world. I understand, you know, we want to tell people to sin, but we need to tell people about grace, about confession, about forgiveness, about restoration, about redemption. That's our God. God is a loving God. He's a kind God. Yes, he's a God of wrath that will be worked out someday, but he's a God that's full of loving kindness. <clears throat> Timothy's mother and grandmother taught him that. But then we also find this passage, now we get a little, move on to the passage a little bit faster. Scripture not only saves, but Scripture sanctifies. You know, in other words, Scripture makes us holy. Scripture advances us. We've said before the title, this is God's breath. Look in verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God. That is one word in the original language. It's theonoustos. That means God, noustos. We get our word pneumatic or pneumonia from. It means breath, breath. So what he's saying, all the graphi, all the writings, now catch this, is the breath of God. Everything written down here is the breath of God. Everything in the Bible comes out of God's heart through his mouth. It's the breath that comes out. My friend, that's why the Bible asserts we don't need anything more than this. Sometimes people come to the Bible and they think, well, we need some kind of new prophetic word. Or you might say that some people say we need a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. It means I have to have some other experience of God through the Holy Spirit out there. Someone, he comes to me, he gives me this new word. There's no reason to think that we need anything outside of this book. The Bible said it's given everything we need for life and for godliness. <clears throat> <clears throat> I had a man come to me at the end of service, oh, probably 12, 13 years ago. And um, I've learned this, that somebody comes to you at the end of a service and they're just, you know, you don't know them and they're just giving you all kinds. Of, that, man, that was, the, that was the greatest sermon since I heard Billy Graham. You know, you go, yeah, 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 yeah. You kind of go like that. But he was buttering me up and I begin to think, what does he want? Finally said, you know, I have a word of prophecy for you. Okay. He said, do you want to hear it? And I said, no. Uh, he said, you don't want to hear a word of prophecy? And I said, not really. I've got all I need in this book. I said, if you want to give it to me, go ahead. And so he explained this. He said, well, he said, I'm a, I'm a farmer in, in Oregon, and I grow Christmas trees. And I'm going to be coming down here in a couple of months delivering Christmas trees, and God told me that you should let us use your parking lot as a Christmas tree lot. <laughs> I said, well, marvelous, if you, don't, if you think if God wanted to do that, he, he might tell me. But see, that's, that's the mindset. God told me, you can't fight that, can you? God, somebody says, God told me. Oh, well, okay, I guess if God told you. No, you can't fight. You say, no, God didn't. God told me here. That's what this is asserting. God told me here. Everything we need for life and godliness is between these pages. That's what he's asserting. 1 Corinthians 14, 37 says, If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things I write to you are the Lord's commandment. In other words, Paul's saying that person needs to understand that I'm giving you what the Lord has said. And if anyone does not recognize this, he is not to be recognized. It's, it's the breath of God. Why would we want to have some other kind of spurious thought or notion or something out there that would contradict what he's already given to us. This is the breath of God. Luther said this, he said, the Bible is alive, it speaks to me, it has feet. <clears throat> it runs after me, it has hands, it lays hold of me. The Bible is not antique or modern, the Bible is eternal, why? Because it's God's breath. And then he gives us an idea about what the Bible will do. He said, secondly, not is it God's breath, but it's profitable. In other words, it's useful. It's beneficial. Friend, listen to this. There's not one word of the Bible that's wasted. I know we go to places like the Beatitudes and say, what's with all of those? But you know, if you take the time to study the Beatitudes, they have incredible, incredible truth in the Beatitudes. 
If you look at the genealogies, there's incredible truth in the genealogies that you have in Matthew and Mark and other places, Matthew and Luke and other places in Scripture. Not one word is wasted. Psalm 19, verse 7 and 9 says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, restrain, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. In that passage, he gives, first of all, six words that describe God's word. It's the law, it's testimony, it's precepts, it's commandment, it's fear, meaning worship, it's judgments. And then he gives six characteristics. It is perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, and it's true. And then he gives six blessings that come out of that. It restores the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It endures forever. And it produces complete righteousness. So why would we ever doubt the power and the transformative nature of what we have in our hands in Scripture? That's why Jude 3 says that we are to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. My friend, this is where the battle is won and lost. And every generation, every generation, I just finished reading a, a book about the evangelical movement in the last hundred years. This is, a move, this is a, an issue they dealt with hundred years ago, an issue that they dealt with 50 years ago. It's a continuation, that is, is this God's word or not? And is it powerful, is it transformed? If this is the breath of God, then it's all of those things. Or it's nothing, it's just a kind of nice, artifact from days gone by. Many people come to scriptures and say, well, we have to depend on other things in order to relate to our world. The Bible really isn't sufficient for all of a need because we live in a culture that's changing and we have to adapt to the culture to win the culture. You ever heard that one? Now you think about that and I think of examples like this. I think of Jonah. You remember Jonah caught up in a great fish. We don't know what it was. God said, I want you to go to Nineveh. Why, did, why go to Nineveh? You ever think of that? You know who Nineveh was? It wasn't just how people are far away. Ninevites were one of the most terrible, brutish, cruel people that the world has ever known. When they would win battles, some of their leaders were prone to take a fish hook, like a big fish hook, put it through the mouth of some of the leaders of the people that conquered, put it out through their jaw, and lead them around like a dog. You can go to the British Museum of Natural History in London today and you can see a big bronze relief that's probably a little bit bigger than this whole wall in which they hammered out some of their stories in bronze. And you can see it there. One of the, one of the scenes depicts the Jews that were captured in some of the battles out like this. Their arms are flayed out, their bodies are out behind them, and they had cut behind the neck down to the right above their buttocks and they skinned them alive. God said, Jonah, I want you to go to those people. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you want me to go where? That's why I turned around and went the opposite direction. So what cultural adaptation did Jonah have to win the Ninevites? <clears throat> None. <clears throat> when Jonah bounced up on those shores, I, I picture him as kind of a bleached out, you know, a guy with straggly hair, maybe moss even hanging from it, you know, dried out from having then walked all his way across the sand. He said, by the way, God told you to repent. And they did. I think in Luke 4, when Jesus spoke of Elijah coming to the widow of Zarephath and of Elisha healing Naaman the Syrian. And when Jesus said that, what they want? They wanted to stone him. Why? Because Jesus was intimating in these Old Testament stories that, listen to this, Gentiles were saved. Gentiles were saved. Remember, Gentiles and Jews had this relationship. When you would walk down a road and you would see a Gentile coming, you would, you would spit on the side of the road and walk around them. And Jesus is saying, those people are saved. 
You see, when we come to Scripture, we have to understand that it's not our abilities that accomplish what needs to be done. It's God's abilities that does it. I was interviewing a guy for a youth pastor position a number of years ago. It was from a large church in Southern California and went down there and made an appointment to start talking with one of our elders. <clears throat> and we asked him a question, and I said, now, now where, do you, where do you anticipate being five or ten years from now? You still want to continue working with students or where you see yourself? He said, well, said, I'm in the process of reinventing myself. And um, we talked a little bit more, and then he said it again. I said, what do you mean reinventing yourself? He said, well, you know, you see my spiky hair? Spiky hair right there. That's stylish. That's what he said. Yeah, spiky. He said, you see my spiky hair? So well, that's stylish now. And I don't know what else. He said, like, my, I don't know, he had certain sandals, these sandals. He said, you see, this is all stylish now. But in five years, the kids in junior high may not dress this way. And so I'm going to have to reinvent myself to appeal to them. I really? He goes, he, he might as well have said that, that probably appeals or appears foolish to you, old man. I said, well, it does. He said, because what you're telling me, if I hire you and you become youth pastor at a church, if you do a youth camp, you would never invite me to speak, right? He said, you can tell the truth. He said, yeah, I wouldn't. I said, why? I said, because I don't have spiky hair and I don't have the right kind of sandals. That tells me that you're depending on spiky hair and the right kind of sandals to win kids instead of the word of God and the Holy Spirit. See, that's what it means. When this is the breath of God, this is sufficient. That's what it means. It's sufficient. James Montgomery Boyce said this, most evangelicals were firm in errancy, but many evangelicals have abandoned the Bible all the same simply because they do not think it is adequate for the challenges we face today. They do not think it's sufficient for winning people to Christ and this age, so they turn to felt need sermons or entertainment or signs and wonders instead. They do not think the Bible is sufficient for achieving Christian growth, so they turn to therapy groups or Christian counseling. They do not think this sufficient to making God's will known, so they look for external signs or revelations. They do not think it's adequate for changing our society, so they establish evangelical lobby groups in Washington, and they work to elect, quote, Christian congressmen, senators, presidents, and other officials. They seek change by power, politics, and money. Dear friend, may we never fall in that category, even in our modern world. It's only the word of God that will change hearts. That's what Timothy's asserting. And then he gives some ideas of how practical this is. He says, you need to know that the word of God teaches. It's profitable for teaching. Teaching just means the repetitive nature, re proclaiming truth repetitively. <clears throat> Scripture is not just a feel-good book. It's not a book on rocket science. It's a book that says that everything we need for life and godliness is, and then we repeat that over and over again. You know what that's called? That's called doctrine. It's doctrine. And never shy away from wanting to understand doctrine. The word for teaching and doctrine is the same word. It's the same word. I remember years ago I read an article in the LA Times Magazine um, quoted a historian who was speaking of a new mood and a new movement at a prominent seminary in Los Angeles. He said this is called post-conservatism. Here's what he said. This is a secular guy from the LA Times looking at this seminary. He said this. He said, post-conservatives see doctrines based on the Bible, whether liberal or fundamentalist, as merely human. Fallible interpretations. Then, then this, I had to read this three times before I got it right. Fallible interpretations through which divine light can leak from time to time. Divine doctrines through which divine truth might leak from time to time. My friend, if you believe that this book is just filled where doctrines are going to leak out from time to time, then just throw the book away. It doesn't make any difference. Go and find some truth somewhere else. But if this is God's divine word, then it, the, the word of God, the doctrine doesn't leak. It gushes on every page. 
The Bible is the only reliable source for ultimate truth, for the existence attributes and the purpose of God. It's the only book that tells about the origin, the purpose, the nature, and the destiny of man. It's the only book that reveals the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's the only book that gives us the pattern for living and a fulfilling life. No wonder some of the last words Jesus gave when he's on this earth, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit. Spirit. And that's usually where we stop. What did he say next? I'll tell you how you do it. By teaching them all to observe all that I commanded you. That's how you do it. Teaching it. All that I commanded you. It's there. The reason we don't see it alive is because we don't spend time studying and reading and seeing the, the, the transcendent nature of the word of God that is there. It teaches us. But Timothy also said it reproves. In other words, it only teaches what the path is. It reproves you when you get off the path. It means to bring to light, to expose, or to set forth, or to convict, or convince. That's the power of the word of God. It'll tell us when we get off the path. Read it years ago about Mickey Cohen who was a, he was a gangster. And in one of the Billy Graham crusades in 1949, he supposedly came to know the Lord. And some guys in the crusade got hold of him, one disciple, and one started teaching about the Bible and how he should live his life. <laughs> Mickey didn't quite get it. Because <clears throat> he said, you know, you're probably going to have to go into a new line of work. Uh, you don't go around whacking people and still say that you're a Christian. And he said this, he said, you never told me that I had to give up my career. You never told me I had to give up my friends. There are Christian movie stars, Christian athletes, Christian businessmen. So what's the matter with being a Christian gangster? If I have to give all that up, if that's Christianity, you can count me out. My friend, Scripture reproves you. Somebody was reproving him. No, Mickey, you're off the path. You don't go on acting like that and call yourself a Christian. There's a big difference when we see that kind of surface kind of repentance in somebody who comes and understands true repentance. Rosario Champagne Butterfield was a tenured lesbian professor at Syracuse University. She came to the Lord in an incredible way. She wrote about in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She says this about repentance. She said, the Bible told me to repent, but I didn't feel like repenting. Do you have to feel like repenting in order to repent? Was I a sinner or was I and my drag queen friends were sick? How do you repent for a sin that doesn't feel like sin? What an incredibly profound statement. Her conscience had been changed over the years, educated for her to believe that this was okay. How do you repent for a sin that doesn't feel like sin? How could the thing that I had studied and become be sinful? How could I be a tenured in a field that is sin? How could I and everyone that I knew and loved be in sin? In this crucible of confusion, I learned something important. I learned that the first rule of repentance, that repentance requires greater intimacy with God than with our sin. How much greater? About the size of a mustard seed. Repentance requires that we draw near to Jesus no matter what, and sometimes we all have to crawl there on our hands and knees. Repentance is an intimate affair, and for many of us, intimacy with anything is a terrifying prospect. So what's the biblical idea of repentance? Mickey Cohen or Rosaria, Rosaria Butterfield? I'd say it's the latter because she understood scripture reproves her and brings her back to path. Timothy also in the search scripture corrects somebody that tells them how to get back on the path. You've gotten off scripture. Now, now what do I do? You get back on the path. It teaches us how to do that. The word means to be upright or to straight or right. It even has the idea of, of straightening. My mother tells me, I don't remember it obviously, but I was born with a club foot and they say we're going to have to do surgery. My brothers had a good time with that later on when I was clumsy. They said, yeah, there's that club foot guy again. 
make all, all kinds of names. But what, what they did, they put a brace on my foot for the first two years of my life. I had to go around. It straightened it. It got it back. It got it straightened out. That's what Scripture will do. Scripture will straighten you out. Also says that it trains, Timothy says, it's profitable for training in righteousness. This is an incredible concept, training in righteousness. We don't usually like the idea of training. We want to do what we want to. Americans are grown accustomed to, I chart my own course, I own destiny. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. But even no matter we're about to see that the Olympics open, we admire training there. These people have discipline themselves. They train themselves so they are advanced in their sport. You know the same thing is true with your Christian life? Scripture trains us in righteousness. Hebrews 12 says this, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there when his, whom his father does not discipline? For if you are without discipline, of which all become partakers, now listen to this, if you're without discipline of God, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. There's a crude word that we use to describe illegitimate children, right? That's what he's saying. Have you ever been disciplined by the word of God? Has the word of God ever corrected you? Have you ever felt chastened? by what you read in scripture, about your attitude or actions. Timothy says it, this is how it works. It disciplines us. Verse 11 goes on, says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Every parent, I think, probably knows this sometime when you take a child and and they've done something wrong, and well, they, they know what your standard is. I'm not talking about a kid, you know, that accidentally spills milk. I'm talking about a kid, like one of mine, that we told them, you know, do this at the table, and then they looked at me and just reached over and just knocked the milk over. Nah, we, need, we need to have a talk. If you don't discipline, if you've never felt that, the writer of Hebrews says, you're not a believer. If you never submit to that. But afterwards, when you discipline a child, when you say you, you breached the conduct in our house and you exercise the correct discipline and they cry and you, know, you do all this and then you hug them and you, what do you do? I love you. I love you. And you love them even more during those times than when they're being nice, I think. I think when those times they fail and yet you love them and they confess, I think those are the most Important times in a child's life is to know that in the middle of that, they're loved. That's the same thing here. And then the last thing he asserts, not only is this God's word <clears throat> as a prophet in these ways, that's kind of brings us to the last point here today because it's where Ram says, that's why it's to be preached. That's why every week, that's why Rod does what he does here. Now, this is not, I'm not saying everybody should be a preacher. I'm not saying that at all. That's not something I ever desired to be, but God kind of put his hand on that and said, this is what I'm going to make you against my own desires, frankly. But a sober response to this is in chapter 4, verse 1. So he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. You know, that means, that means Christ is looking on right now. Now, I don't know if you feel the weight of that. I do. <clears throat> Throughout my life as a pastor, that's a sobering thing. In fact, as I tell people, I have, I have two prayers, basically, I pray on Sunday. I have the prayer on the way to church, and I'm holding my notes after I spent the hours in study, and I, I know my own friend is, oh, God, will you please make this turkey fly? Because I don't have anything here. I don't have anything. If this is going to do any good at all, it's going to because your spirit is going to take your word and he's going to do something in the hearts of people are going to listen to this. Oh, God, would you please do that? The other prayer I have at the end of the sermon is probably like I'll pray today. So, oh, God, I hope you did something with that because I feel my own frailty. But that's still why it's to be preached. 
is be proclaimed. You know the word for preaching is? Um, I, I, I get a kick out of this because the word is the Greek word keruso. I get a kick out of it because years ago there was an Italian opera singer named Enrique Caruso. You've seen opera singers, whether you like opera or not. They stand up front, man, they just belt it. They don't need microphones. God has just given them pipes, and they just belt it from a stage, you know, with a couple thousand people. That's K. Russo. That's preaching. It means to herald, and the herald in old times, a herald didn't give his own message. A herald was just there to say, hear ye, hear ye. Here's what the king says. That's preaching. This isn't my word. This isn't McNeff. This is God's word. That's why it's to be proclaimed, not debated. I know there are times in different doctrines we have debates on what it means. I get that, but basically it's to be proclaimed. It's to be heralded from the rooftops. This is God's word. My friend, do we need to hold on to that or recover that today? Because Christ is watching what we do. Charles Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers that ever lived, and he understood this in verse 2, and it says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. He said this, again, it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible at last until your blood is bibbling, and the very essence of the Bible flows through you. To dig into the Bible until your very blood is bibbling, until your thoughts are permeated with God's thoughts. So your words reiterate things that you've read here. So that your actions repeat the righteous actions of people that you've seen in Scripture. So that you become a living letter of the very word of God. Not carrying my ideas and my thoughts my political agenda, my philosophy, my academic outstanding nature. No, it's to, it's to mark ourselves as Christian men and women who are going to repeat what we see in Scripture. Titus 1 verse 9 says, Pastors will be holding fast the faith of the word which in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict why? Because there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. You think that's not being done today? You think our world is not filled with men and women that still do that today? Just giving their opinions, their thoughts, and they're upsetting whole families, whole cultures because they're teaching that which isn't true. That's why we need to be men and women who understand God's calling on us to hold on to the very breath of God. What a privilege to say that we hold this book and the historical and the culture, cultural background to this is important, but when we see the very words come alive in the page, it becomes the way that we live. My friend, the church must hold on to it. James Montgomery Boyce, who was a pastor in Philadelphia a number of years ago, said this, whenever in the Whenever in the church's, church biblical authority has been lost, Christ has been displaced, and the gospel has been distorted, or faith has been perverted, it has always been for one reason. Our interests have displaced God's, and we are doing his work in our way. The loss of God's centrality in the life of today's church is common and lamentable. It is this loss that allows us to transform worship into entertainment, gospel preaching into marketing, believing into technique, being good into feeling good about ourselves, and faithfulness into being successful. As a result, God, Christ, and the Bible have come to mean too little to us and rest too inconsequentially upon us. Friends, I hope that you I hope that you revere this book as God's breath. I, I'm not talking about the you know the onion skin pages and the leather cover. I mean the essence of this book. You you won't turn a page in here, but you won't find something from the heart of God. Not one thing. 
And when you want to know truth and structure and purpose and dignity in your life, you find it here. You won't find it in academia. You won't find it in politics. You won't find it in um, business. You won't find it in your neighborhood. You may not even find it in your family. You'll find it here in God's word. Father, thank you that you have given us your breath, your word. Thank you for the many ways that we can dig into it and see your heart and uh, know what you have for us. Thank you, Father, for these, this, I just thank you for these two faithful women, this mom and this grandmother, who taught Timothy these truths so that by the time he came here, Paul said, you've been taught well, Timothy. And they built on that, and he took this shy young man who became a follower of Christ because he followed Paul. So, Father, thank you for that. May you enliven us with the breath of God as we walk this week. Pray this in your name. Amen.